0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are continuing our study this morning of 1 Thessalonians. And today we're going to look at verses 3 through 5 of chapter 5. Now, I want you to keep in mind that the context in this section that runs from 4.13 to 5.11 is about the second coming. That's what this context deals with. Matter of fact, every chapter in this book deals with the second coming. This is an important issue for Paul to the Thessalonians. Now, we spent our last two studies looking at the first two verses of chapter 5 and talking about the day of the Lord. Paul says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, the phrase day of the Lord is an expression taken from the Tanakh, where it is used many times in regard to the judgment, the destruction of various nations. We have to understand that the New Testament writers got their material from the Tanakh. They didn't make this stuff up. The language they use, the different phrases they use, come from the Tanakh, what many people call the Old Testament. And so if you have no understanding of that, you're going to get lost in the New Testament. This is a time of judgment, the the day of the Lord. And it usually meant a time when God Himself would punish or judge people by means of the armies of another people. For example, Isaiah 13.1 says, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. This is an oracle. This is a judgment on Babylon. Okay? That's what this chapter is about. Babylon. Okay? Verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, is near. And this is a great description of what the day of the Lord is, as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. So here the day of the Lord is referring to the destruction of Babylon, but God is doing it. Alright? Now drop down to verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. So Yahweh is using the medes to discipline, to chasten, to destroy Babylon. And this is a day of the Lord. Now this event that's written about here is a historical event that took place in 539 B.C. And this destruction, again, is said in verse 6 to be from the Almighty, but the Medes constituted the means that God used to accomplish that task. The invading army of other nations brought the judgment. They brought the destruction. And this was called the Day of the Lord. Now, while references in the Tanakh to the Day of the Lord are used of various nations, and God using various nations to judge, here's what we have to understand. All references in the New Testament to the Day of the Lord, and there's only four of them, but all of them refer to the Day of the Lord that happened in AD 70 There was a judgment that came against the nation Israel. And God used the Roman army to come against the nation Israel to judge them. So, in reference to the day of the Lord, Paul says this to the Thessalonians. You have no need to have anything written to you. You yourselves are fully aware. This tells us that he had taught them carefully and thoroughly. Listen, Paul was there for three weeks. He taught them everything they needed to know about eschatology in three weeks. Okay? He probably was using Glenn's book to, to help them out, you know, get a handle on this, but they learned everything they needed to know. Okay? Including the day of the Lord, which would issue in this judgment on Israel. Now, commenting on these verses, Chuck Smith writes this, I believe that the Lord intended us to be knowledgeable A Bible prophecy. agree with that? I agree. He does want us knowledgeable about it. And thus knowledgeable about the signs of His coming. Well, I agree. The Lord wants us knowledgeable about Bible prophecy. Paul tells that the Thessalonians, they had all they needed to know. He had taught them about the second coming. And according to R.C. Sproul, two-thirds of the New Testament is either directly or indirectly eschatological. Two-thirds. According to James Montgomery Boyce, in the New Testament, one verse in 25 deals with the Lord's return. It's mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. Important subject. Ray Stedman says, "...the second coming is the most frequently mentioned truth in all the New Testament." And Wayne Jackson says it's referenced eight times more often than the Lord's initial coming. So prophecy is a big deal. Let me finish this quote from Chuck Smith. He says, And certainly there are interesting signs of His coming in the world today. Today. So how much does he understand about Bible prophecy? Okay, he goes on to say, Israel existing as a nation, tremendous sign of the coming again of Jesus Christ. And I I would ask, hey Chuck, where in Matthew 24 does it talk about Israel becoming a nation being a sign? He lists the signs in Matthew 24. I don't remember reading that. Oh, here's another one. Europe gathered together in a community of ten nations. An interesting sign of the return again of Jesus Christ. All right, listen, here's what Chuck Smith is missing. Almost every time that the second coming is mentioned, there is a time statement attached to it. Over 100 time statements. It's always soon, shortly, near this generation. Some of you standing here, it is never, this will be a long way off. Never says that. It's always soon. And it's not, well, this will be soon, but there's another one later. It's just always near. It's always soon. I believe, he says, the Lord intended us to be knowledgeable. I agree, but Chuck doesn't seem to be too knowledgeable about Bible prophecy. He's missing all the time statements, ignoring all the time statements, looking for something to happen in our future. He missed it by 2,000 years. Well, commenting on 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2, Stephen J. Cole writes this. We should not doubt that the day of the Lord is coming. Even though it is delayed, you either have to throw out the Bible completely or acknowledge that the day of the Lord will certainly come. Okay? So he said, we, meaning contemporary people, he's a contemporary writer, we should no doubt the day of the Lord is coming. He's looking for it in the future. He said it's certainly going to come. And so you either have to believe the day of the Lord is coming Or you have to throw out your Bible he says I got another alternative for you okay here's what I would say to Chuck you either have to throw out the time statements completely or acknowledge that the day of the Lord has already come okay well notice what Paul says about the day of the Lord he says it will come like a thief in the night where did Paul get that teaching from the famous guy kind of rose from the dead Yeshua, okay? He got that from Yeshua Himself. Look at Matthew 24, 42 and 43. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. All right, this comparison of the Lord's coming to that of a thief in the night is found several different places throughout the New Testament. And as we look at these different texts, please take note of who is being addressed here. It is always exhorting them, the first century saints, to be ready for the coming of Christ in their lifetime. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to be a surprise. Peter uses the same idea of the Lord's coming as a thief in the night. In 2 Peter 3.10, he says, "...but the day of the Lord..." Will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works that are done in it will be exposed. Now That's not talking about the earth being destroyed. We went, we dealt with this text a couple of weeks ago. I'd encourage you, if you weren't didn't listen to that message, to go back and see what Peter is actually talking about here. So Paul uses this thief in the night idea that he gets from Yeshua. Peter uses it. John uses it in quoting Yeshua in Revelation 3.3. 3. He says, Remember that when you received and heard, keep and repent. Keep it and repent. If you wake up, you will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I come against you. So again, this idea is coming like a thief. That's what he taught. He's coming like a thief if they were not watching. Revelation 16.15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Again, we see His coming as a thief and the blessedness of those watching, those prepared. Now, common to all these passages is the idea of suddenness, the idea of unexpectedness of the coming, and consequently the danger of unpreparedness on the part of those in the first century. First century saints who saw the promise of His coming fulfilled. Now, to us... The idea of a thief usually just means someone who stole something from you. They came in your store, came in your house, they stole something, and they just made off with it. But the original word has to do with someone who does housebreaking or highway violence. In other words, they rob you on the road, they beat you up, and they take what you have. So it's more violently than just taking what belonged to you. So Yeshua told them He was coming, and they were to be expecting it so they would be prepared for it. Now, if a man knows the approximate time a thief may come into his house, he's going to take precautions. They don't usually announce, hey, I'm coming by your house tonight, you know, two o'clock while you're sleeping, I'll be breaking in. Oh, thank you. Bring a body bag. You're going to need it, okay? Let me give you an illustration from my life (laughs) on this idea of being ready, okay? When I was a youth pastor, several of the teens out of their great love for me, would come by my house in the middle of the night and toilet paper the house. They would cover the trees with toilet paper. It was beautiful. The precious little darlings, they would also take wood from my wood pile and stand them up all around the yard. Okay? I mean, just a sight to see. Don't get any ideas. Yeah, but here's the problem. It would take me hours in the morning to clean it up. So I wasn't real happy with them, Okay? This happened on several occasions, and to say the least, I wasn't thrilled with their expression of love. One night before a youth trip, we are taking a bus trip, I received an anonymous phone call from someone telling me, the teens are going to TP your house tonight. Oh, was I excited. (laughs) (laughs) I sat in the front bedroom. We were on a cul-de-sac, so we didn't get a lot of traffic down there. So I sat in the front bedroom. The window was up. I sat there. I had a bungee strap. took the hooks off and just had the bungee strap. I was going to beat me some teenagers, okay? <laughs> I was going to make them not want to come back to my house again. I'm up there all night and I'm sitting by the window. I fell asleep a couple times. Every time I hear a noise, I wake up all night long. Nothing happened. They never showed up. <sighs> it was discouraging. I was ready for their coming, but they never came. So in the morning... I'm there with the bus, and kids are getting on the bus, and one of the kids comes on, and he kind of smirks at me, and he says, did you get a good night's sleep last night? <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, they got me. They got me. They knew, you know, I did catch them one night, by the way. I did catch them one night. <laughs> yes, thank, thank goodness my wife spared their life, because, yes... Uh, I did catch him, But let me just say, the Lord is not like those kids, okay? He was not pulling some kind of prank on the first century saints. Just kidding. Not really coming. No, He wasn't doing that. He told them to be alert because He was coming in their generation to destroy Jerusalem and the old covenant system. In verse 44, the Lord told His disciples, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay? Be ready, he says. Now, the Greek word for ready here is hetoimas, and it's from a a noun that has the idea of being adjusted, to be ready, to be prepared. Luke puts the same warning this way. But watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all those things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So this is a severe warning. Be careful. Now, I love the ESV. I think it's a good translation for the most part. But the whole earth here, this is terrible. It's just terrible. This is the Greek word gay. Gay means land. Usually in context, it's talking about the land of Israel. Okay. This has nothing to do with the whole earth. Look at uh, Luke 21, 20, back up in the context a little. When you see Jerusalem, oh, so it's talking about Jerusalem? Surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come. You get that, right? The city surrounded by armies. Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Okay? So it's talking about Jerusalem. That is the land that he's talking about. So don't take this subject to come in and say, oh, the whole world. It's not the whole world, all right? It's Jerusalem. All right, let's move on. Verse 3. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, what I want you to notice here is that there is a pronoun switch from the second person in verses 1 and 2, to the third person in verse 3. So it's, but you yourselves, talking to the believers of Thessalonica, then you get to verse 5 and he says, destruction will come upon, not you, but them, as labor pains upon our pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Well, J. Hampton Keithley the third he writes this, he says, note the pronouns, they and them, in verse 3. In contrast to 4:15 and 16, I don't know why he jumps all the way over there. Yeah, I do, but I'll show you in a minute. The apostle did not include himself or his readers with those who would see the day of the Lord. But that is exactly what he did when describing the rapture in chapter 4. So he doesn't include himself or his readers, he said, with those who would see the day of the Lord. Why? Why? Because now in chapter 5, these third-person pronouns refer to those left behind after the rapture. That is non-Christians. So he is using a pronoun change to support his rapture theory view, which is kind of foolish because how could the day of the Lord surprise them that he says in verse 5, it's going to, don't let it surprise you like a thief. How could it surprise them if they're not there? That'd be kind of dumb to tell them, don't let it surprise you. Well, don't worry, you're not even going to be here anyway because you're going to be raptured before it happens. Why did the pronouns change here? Because he's talking about unbelievers. The day of the Lord is not a judgment on believers, it's on unbelievers. Look at verse 9, he says, For God has not destined us, that's Paul the in Thess- the Thessalonians, believers, He has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua. So the us as believers, believers receive salvation, not wrath. Now, how? How were the believers spared from the wrath of God on the day of wrath? How were they spared? Were they spared? Well, let's look at Matthew twenty four fifteen and 16. So when you see the abomination of desolation, the one spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. This is something there to understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All right, the abomination of desolation is a Hebrew expression meaning an abominable or a hateful destroyer. This is a reference, I believe, to Cestius Gallus and the Roman army who were the abomination of desolation. This was fulfilled in AD 66 when the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem and destroyed it. Now Yeshua told them, flee to the mountains. Who's to flee? Those in Judea. What about all the other people on the world when this happens to the whole world? It's not happening to the whole world. This is localized. Okay, if you're in Judea, flee to the mountains. Get out of there. And you know what? You know what they did when they surrounded by armies? They came in and they surrounded the city, set a siege against it. Then something happened politically in Rome. And so they said, oh, we got to back off. we got to get back to Rome. So it was kind of a break in the siege. When they had that break, the Christians fled out of the city. They're like, okay, remember what Yeshua told us? And they fled to Pella. They got out of there. Romans came back, destroyed it. They weren't there. They got out. They listened to the Lord. They didn't experience the judgment. Now, here's a question. A good question, I think. I'm glad you asked it. How did the destruction of the temple and the city in Jerusalem at the day of the Lord affect the Thessalonians? I mean, Jerusalem is over 900 miles from Thessalonica. Well, with the city and the temple destroyed, here's what you have to understand. The ones that were persecuting the Thessalonians were Jews. They were the ones putting the pressure on. They were the ones killing them. They were the ones attacking them. And when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jews no longer were able to attack the Christians. And for the most part, the persecution ended then. But I think the biggest reason the wrath against Christianity ended at the second coming was because it was then that the spiritual battle ended. God judged the false gods, per Psalm 82... The battle was no longer a spiritual battle. There, Satan was behind the Jews and the persecution. That ended, the persecution ended. So he say, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction. Now, when he says peace and security here, he's probably bringing a reference up to the prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, because during their time, the prophets were prophesying about destruction, And the false prophets were saying, don't worry about it. See, Jeremiah prophesied about about the day of the Lord, and he warned Judah, the southern kingdom, of judgment. And Jeremiah was talking about a historical day of the Lord in which God would come and use another nation as His executioner. And many of them are going to be massacred. The rest of them are going to be deported off into Babylon. So Jeremiah saw a near historical day of the Lord coming on Judah. He's predicting this army's going to come. It's going to wipe out Judah. It's going to dispossess them from their land and haul them off into captivity. In Jeremiah 6.1, he says, flee for safety. He's telling them, get out of here, O people of Benjamin. From the midst of Jerusalem, behold the trumpet of Tekoa, and rise a signal in Beth-Hakarim. For disaster looms out of the north and great destruction. The Babylonian army is camped on their northern border, and he tells them, get out of here. But they didn't listen to him because they had another voice saying, it's okay, don't worry about it. And they like that other voice better. Don't people normally do that? Let me pick which one I like better. Not which one's true, but which one I like better. Jeremiah 6:13 and 14 says, From the least to the greatest of them... Everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. So peace and security. This is the message of the false prophets of Jeremiah's day and in Paul's day. Matthew 24, 37 and 38 says, For as it was in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood... They're eating and drinking, marrying. You know, Noah's building this big boat and they're laughing. There's no water around here. What's this old fool doing? You know, they're just going on with life as normal. Until the day when Noah entered the ark. Now, when it started to rain, things changed a little for him, okay? But Yeshua's making a comparison here between his coming and Noah's flood. As the flood came and took them all away, so judgment on Israel is going to take them all away. The unbelievers of Israel, just like the unbelievers in Noah's day, will be taken away in judgment. Now keep in mind that he's talking about here, he's reminding them that no one knows the day or the hour. And the point that Yeshua is making is just as in the days of Noah, the wicked people didn't know until the flood came and took them away. He said it's going to be that same way in the second coming. In the days of Noah, they're eating and drinking, they're having just a good time, carrying on, and they thought there was a peace and safety. Now, why would people during this time be saying peace and security when the biblical emphasis is that there will be an intense suffering before the second coming? So how can, if there's an intense suffering, how are they saying, and why would anybody believe in this idea of peace and safety? Well, Daniel 12.1 says this, And at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. Daniel's people is Israel. All right? Israelites. And he tells them, there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? What Daniel says there? Because Yeshua said that in Matthew 24. He says, there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and nor ever will be. So if there's this great tribulation, how are they thinking peace and safety? How is anybody listening to a message of peace and safety? Commentator David Guzik writes this. He says, This sudden coming in a time when many say peace and safety must be distinct from the coming of Jesus described in Matthew 24, 15, 35. The coming of Jesus described in this text in Matthew happens at a time of great catastrophe when no one could possibly say peace and safety. Comparing passages like this shows us there must be, in some way, two aspects to Jesus' coming. No, wrong. This is not talking about different things. This is not talking about two comings of Christ. Let me give you a little history here that I hope you understand what's going on here. The Roman Emperor Augustus, he inaugurated an age of peace called the Pax Romana in 17 B.C. The Peace of Rome. There were no wars. Rome kept everything under control. It was peaceful. There wasn't any war. And that peace remained pretty much in effect until Nero. So, during this Pax Romana, this Peace of Rome... You got this apocalyptic teaching going on and it sounds like there's going to be this terrible stuff and people are like, how can you be saying this is going to happen when we're in the Pax Romana? We're in the peace of Rome. It's everything is cool here. Here's what we need to understand. The day of the Lord begins with the tribulation when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. There was a three and a half year siege against the city of Jerusalem which concluded with the total destruction of the city and the temple. So the day of the Lord is not a day. It's three and a half years. Okay? It's a time of destruction. Remember, the day of the Lord is simply talking about a destruction. When God uses one nation to chastise another, this doesn't happen in a day. Okay? Ancient warfare, they'd surround the cities a lot of times, just cut off any supplies going in, coming out. So they'd starve to death. So they did this for three and a half years, then they destroyed Jerusalem. So the Jewish leadership would have responded when they hear the apostles teaching, you know, this is what's going to happen, this temple's going to fall, God's going to judge, they would just sneer and mock and say, it's peace, we're in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, nothing is going to happen, and they mocked right up until the Roman army showed up, okay, then things changed, Because he said, when they're saying peace and safety, they're saying, hey, everything's good, we're all right, it's fine. Then, he says, sudden destruction will come upon them. Now, the word sudden here is only found here, and in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. Luke says, but watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. The word translated suddenly here is is ephnēios. It's an adjective modifying destruction. It had a similar ominous tone. It spoke of those sudden and unexpected events that would cause terror and anguish. So he says this is going to come upon them suddenly, and then he says, like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. This is a metaphor. It's used throughout the Tanakh, speaking of judgment. Isaiah thirteen six 6-8 says, Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come, therefore all hands will be feeble, every human heart will melt, they will be dismayed, pains and agony will seize them, they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. man, all this talk about pain and suffering makes me glad I'm not a woman I don't you know want to have to go through all this stuff okay. Listen, this idea of the pain of labor became a New Testament metaphor of birth pains of the new age. Okay? And Matthew 24, 80 says, then these are but the beginning of birth pains. Romans 8:22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So labor pain speaks of suddenness and certainty of an event. When a woman gets pregnant, she goes to the doctor, and the doctor gives her a due date. What do we not know? We don't know. The doctor doesn't say, it'll be on the 24th at 5 o'clock. No. He says, well, you know you got 40 weeks gestation period, so in about 40 weeks, you ever take two or three, depending on the woman, you know you're going to have a baby. But nobody knows the day or the hour that's going to come. One minute this woman's fine, she's walking around doing woman things, and all of a sudden she's double over in pain, and it's sudden, boom. Woman things, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, woman thing. You're cooking, cleaning, take care of your man. Woman things. <laughs> Jeremy, you ready to come take over? <laughs> Jeremy's got a message. He's going to preach now in Huapatoso. Okay. <laughs> So, so she's fine one minute, next minute. It's like, what in the world? She's in agony and she's in pain. My wife was having contractions in the hospital and she fell asleep and I woke her up to tell her she was having a contraction and she wouldn't appreciate that. <laughs> Honey, wake up, it's time. You're having a contraction. I learned that wasn't a good thing to do, okay? <laughs> but here, I think the main idea of labor pain for a pregnant woman in this text is that it's inescapable. And that's what He says, they will not escape. This is a strong expression in the Greek. It's an emphatic double negative. Never, no, never under any circumstances will they escape. When this comes, when the day of the Lord comes, there's not going to be any escape. Any more than a woman can escape labor once she's pregnant. Okay, that's the thing. You know if a woman gets pregnant, she's going through labor pains. Now we're excluding the idea of C-section, okay, here. We're just talking about normal labor. It's going to happen. And that's what he's saying. Nobody's going to escape. It's coming like labor pains. It's going to be intense. It's going to happen. Now, this passage contrasts them and they with you and brothers in verse 4. Verse 4 says, but you. So we got them and they. They're, they're not going to escape. These unbelievers... It's coming on them. They're not going to escape. It's going to come like labor pains. But you, brothers, this marks out a contrast. It, contrast, it introduces an appeal to believers. In verse 3, we have them and they. Then in verse 4, but you. And then in verse 6, we have others. So, but you is very emphatic in the original. Paul is contrasting the destiny of believers with that of unbelievers. And in verse 4, he says, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, what does he mean by darkness here? Well, darkness is a symbol both of spiritual blindness and lack of knowledge. Their understanding is dark. They just don't get it. They don't understand. Look at Romans 1, 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts Were darkened. This is the darkness of spiritual things. It's spiritual blindness. They they don't understand spiritual things. In Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says, For at one time you were darkness. All believers. You were all darkness. But now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. They were blind to the things of God, but now, he says, believers are light. And the association between life and sin... And darkness was well known in the Tanakh, as well as in the writings of the Qumran literature. The authors describe Christian salvation as the passage from darkness to light, and redemption as being enlightened. Hebrews 6.4, Hebrews 10.32 talks about that, being enlightened. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4.17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. Okay, the gent- they don't get it. They don't understand the things of God. They don't understand spiritual things. And they are darkened in their understanding. It's a perfect participle there, and it means to make blind. And a per- perfect participle means something that happened in the past with continuing results. They made blind. They're still blind. Now, the word understanding is translated from the Greek verb Dianoia, and it means deep thought. This word is specifying more than just thought. It refers to comprehension, discernment, judgment. It conveys the idea of a clouded or darkened mind in contrast to an illumined mind. So when he says, you're not in darkness, in other words, you're not in that not understanding, blind phase. You don't, you as believers And believers are not in spiritual darkness. They know the Lord, one thing, and they also know Yahweh's plans. That's when he's telling them, you're not in darkness. That day's not going to overtake you like a thief because you know about it. How did they know? Well, the Old Covenant prophets talked about this. One of the ways they understood what the plan was in the coming was they understood the feast days of the Lord. And those seven feast days lay out in detail and dates the coming of the Lord. They knew that. Yeshua had taught them about it. Paul had taught them about it. Paul says, you don't need any more teaching because I gave you everything you need to know. So they won't be surprised. They're not in darkness. For that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, when the day of the Lord arrived, the believers at Thessalonica, he said, they won't be surprised because Paul taught them eschatology. They were well informed. Now, Get what he's saying here to the Thessalonians. That day will not surprise you like a thief, right? John MacArthur, writing on 1st... Th- I know, I, I love to pick on John. He's just so pick onable, though, okay? 1st Thessalonians 5, you wait till... I got a quote for you to blow your mind, and I'm in here, but... MacArthur says this, God has left us in the dark about that. Talking about the second coming. The Thessalonians, they weren't in the dark, but we are. We're not as smart as them. Why, he says, so that every generation would live in the light of the reality that it could happen in their lifetime. So that every generation would have to face the fact that Jesus could come in the final judgment during their lifetime. So every generation, every generation, you know, seem to remember something about Yeshua saying Nailing down the generation. Because I remember, didn't he say this generation? Matthew 24 34. Truly I say unto you, this generation. Now, people, this is not difficult. Okay, really, it's not. This is the near demonstrative. He didn't say some generation, he didn't say that generation. If he just said that generation, they'd say what generation? He said, this generation, they go, oh, our generation, this one, the one I'm in, the one we're talking about. You get that, right? It's not complicated. If I said, this building is going to be remodeled, would you say, what building? I'd say, what is wrong with you? Okay, this one, the one we're in. But if I said to you, that building is going to be remodeled, then you'd be like, what building? What are you talking about? You need a context. Now, MacArthur commenting on this verse in Matthew 24 we're going down the rabbit hole here. Now, the question comes immediately at this juncture. What generation is he talking about? I don't know, John. Give me a hint. What generation isn't going to pass? Well, to pass means to die. <laughs> Thanks, John. To come to an end. The generation will not come to an end until all these things be fulfilled. He gets that. Okay, that's what it means. What generation? Hmm. (laughs) Again, I think Yeshua said, This one, John! Pay attention to what Yeshua's talking about here. Okay, hang on to your seats, because you're going to love this, okay? He goes on to say this, And there's no reason to believe this generation means this little group of disciples, because if that's what he meant, he could have said, you will not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. <laughs> well, boy, I'm glad Yeshua didn't say that. Well, wait a minute, or did he? Well, let's go to Matthew six You know, John knows the Bible. He's got a oh, he's got his own Bible out, the John MacArthur Study Bible. He must know it, right? He says, for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, this is the second coming He's talking about. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here. He's talking to people, His disciples, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. I say to you, those are the disciples, the little group that John said he would have said this to, you're standing here, you won't see this. This is going to come before all of you die. Some of them are going to be alive when the Lord returned in that generation. The current generation, the generation Yeshua was talking to, fits with all the soon, quickly, shortly time statements about the second coming. Look again what he says. There's no reason to believe this generation means this little group of disciples because if that's what he meant, he would have said that. He would have said, you will not pass away. He did. It's exactly what he said. I read this and I was like, no, you didn't say that. You did not say that. He did. People, this is sorry because you know what most people do? They go, yeah, that's right. They would just agree and nod their head instead of saying, wait a minute. I think, I think there's a place where he did say this. People, when, this is what I call preterist deranged syndrome. Okay, you're so hung up in your futurist eschatology that you just trash the Bible. You trash it. You take this generation and you make it be every generation. You take you know, what the Lord said and you just twist it and move it on. All right, oh, let me move on. Okay, having too much fun here. <laughs> I'm thankful for John. I what would I say if I didn't have John? He cut my material in half, okay? I love reading John because it always gives me some good stuff to say. Okay, let's go to verse 5. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Now, starting at this point and going through verse 10, Paul couches his teaching and exhortation in the first person plural, moving from talking about what they the unbelievers do, to what we Christians do. So there's a distinct contrast between unbelievers, characterized by spiritual and moral darkness, and believers who are children of light and of the day. He says believers will not be surprised when the day of the Lord comes because they're expecting it. They know what's going to happen. Now the word children here is the Greek word weos, and that means son. Okay. Now, in the Semitic language, generally to be a son of something means to be characterized by that thing. So believers are characterized by light, we're characterized by day, which are Semitic idioms for righteousness. We're light, we're day, we're righteous. In the Bible, light represents the righteousness of God, while dark represents evil and the influence of Satan. So to walk in the light or to walk in the darkness is to live according to truth or error. Now this metaphorical dualism of light versus darkness is characteristic of the ancient Near East. It's a recurrent theme in John's writings. It's a recurrent theme in the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you're familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls, the members of the Dead Sea sect at Qumran, they called themselves sons of light. This is a they understood this, okay? Sons of light. But the Christian use finds its roots in the teaching of Yeshua, because Yeshua identified himself as the light of the world in John eight twelve. 12. Yeshua spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Now, to his listeners, this would have said, hey, wait a minute. The Lord told us about a light that was going to come. He's the light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul says that believers are light in Ephesians five eight. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now he says, now you are light in the Lord. A contrast is seen both by the adversative conjunction day here, but, and the adverb of time, noon, which is now here. We were darkness, but now we're light in the Lord. How this happened? How do we become light? What happened to the darkness? Well, we're in the Lord. That's our position. This is positional truth, and it doesn't fluctuate with our performance. You're not light in the Lord as long as you do something right. You're light in the Lord because you're in the Lord. Light and darkness are prominent themes in Paul's epistles, and these symbols are prominent in the Gospels and in the teaching of our Lord. They're employed by Paul, by Peter, by John. The symbol of light and darkness are not new to the New Testament. Their themes, again, they're rooted in the Tanakh. They're drawn upon and applied in the New Testament. So light is a significant metaphor in Scripture. And the word light occurs on the very first and the very last page of Scripture. It talks about light. It's used 250 times in between. Let's go to the very first place that light appears in Scripture. Genesis 1:1 and 2. "...in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." So we got darkness here over the face, over the earth. Then verse 3 says, "...and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness." And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now this may seem like a a straightforward account of physical realities of light and darkness, but there's much more going on than this. If you study this Genesis creation account in the ancient Near East context, you know that there's a whole lot more going on here. In the ancient world, the sea and the darkness were synonymous with the gods of chaos and death. So in the ancient imagination, darkness was understood to be a problem. So the creation of light and the separation of light and darkness in Genesis intends to communicate Yahweh's dominance over the gods of darkness, death, and chaos. At the beginning of this creation account, the earth is dark, it's in disarray. And at the end, it is light and it's ordered. And the progress from darkness to light and from disorder to order, light was created by God to separate the darkness and the light. God creates light as something as an antidote to darkness. Light comes from God. And darkness is a problem that needs to be contained. And it's from that prolific concept of light and dark that good and evil. Is born in Isaiah 5:20. It says, "Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, to put darkness for light and light for darkness, to put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter." So we could say that light and darkness are synonyms for good and evil. In the Psalms, light and darkness are used symbolically. Light becomes a symbol for salvation. Yahweh is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Light is also a symbol for truth. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Light is a symbol of Yahweh's splendor and presence. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So light is essential to biological life. It's necessary for life to thrive and flourish and purpose. And the authors of Scripture recognize this. Let me just say this, so I gotta say it, okay? The sun is good. The sun is not your enemy, all right? Our culture today has demonized the sun, and people hide inside in the darkness, and we are the sickest generation that ever lived. The sun does not give you skin cancer. Lathering all those chemical lotions on you is what gives you skin cancer, okay? In past days, when people were sick, they would drag them out into the light during the day to help them heal. You say, what do I do? I can't stay out in the sun all day. No, stay out for a while, get some base, and then cover up. Don't put chemicals all over you. And then say, oh, the sun's bad. sun's going, like, I didn't do that. You did that. Okay? People, whatever our society is teaching, you know, go the opposite direction. Okay? Just go the opposite direction. Because they've turned, they've turned light into darkness, all right? All right, the simple connection between light and life is developed thoroughly, especially in the Psalms. And it comes to refer to not just biological life or existence, but the fullness of life and Yahweh's presence. Light in life indicates vitality, prosperity. Darkness, conversely, connotes death. Psalm 56, 1-3 through three says, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Isaiah 47, 45, 7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Okay, again, I like DSV, but another bad translation. The word calamity here is the Hebrew word raw. Ra means... Evil. I don't care if you don't like it; it still means evil. I don't care if it doesn't fit your theology; it still means evil. And I would challenge you: go look up the word "raw" in the Hebrew scriptures and trace its use, and you're going to find out "raw" means evil. So God says, "I make well-being; I create evil." People are like, oh, can't God can't do that? God can do whatever He wants, okay? And that's what He says. So why wouldn't we just believe Him? All right. Now, as we saw from the Genesis account. It's God's Word that ushers in light. Yahweh's speech is light that illumines and makes known. And the concept is developed especially in the Psalms as God's Word is described as a light and as a lamp. Light's a metaphor for vision, for sight, for truth, for knowledge, for wisdom. And darkness, conversely, indicates ignorance and blindness. Psalm 119, 105, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Your Word is a lamp. To my feet, a light to my path. If you're having trouble on the path, people, get a light. Get in the Word of God that it will lighten your way. It shows you the direction. It illumines the path. You can't walk it without that light. Daniel 2.22, He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. Speaking of Christ, the prophet writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Now, when when Christ comes along and says, I'm the light of the world, they said, wait a minute, Isaiah said a light was coming. Light is symbolic of Christ who was to come. In Psalm 118, 25, he says, save us, we pray, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you from the house of Yahweh. Yahweh is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festival, sacrifice with cords, up to the horns of the altar. Now, as we come to the New Testament, we see the metaphors for light developed in the Tanakh get applied to Yeshua and to his followers. Matthew asserts that Isaiah's vision is fulfilled in Yeshua and says this in Matthew 4:16 the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death on them a light has dawned and here we see light as eternal life as salvation john teaches the same truth in john 1 he says in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't overcome it There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, speaking of John, but came to bear witness about the light, Yeshua, the true light, which gives light to everyone coming in the world. Here again, we see light as eternal life. And notice that Yeshua is not just the light of Israel. He said... As Yahweh, it was said in Isaiah that you know, He was the light. He was the light to Israel. But Yeshua here is, He's telling us He's the light to all men. It's beyond Israel. Light not only reveals the true state of things, it also dispels darkness. It illumines. The light of the gospel as it shines forth in the life of those who follow Christ dispels darkness, reveals the true nature of evil. He says, you're children of light. In contrast to those people who will be overtaken by the day of the Lord, the the Thessalonian believers are sons of the light and sons of day. And it's without exception, he says, you are all. All you believers are children of light. And this is true of every believer. We are sons of light because believers are light in the Lord. Paul says, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's our position. And then he says this, walk. As children of light. So he moves from the indicative of what they are to the imperative, how they should live. And because we are children of light, we are to walk that way. People should see our lives and say, there's something different. Good something different, not weird something different. There's something different about them. Because when you love the unlovely, you get noticed. When you don't retaliate to people, you get noticed. For a good thing. And they're like, something's strange about you. So Paul is saying in effect here to believers, listen believer, be what you are. You're light. Walk that way. Live that way. Let the world see the light of God through you. Light represents righteousness. The Christian life is to be lived in the light of Yahweh. Followers of Yeshua are light, and they're to walk in the light. They're to shine on others. And we have straightforward biblical commands when Paul says, walk as children of light. It should be clear. It should be demonstrated by who we are, how we live. The Lord said, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works. And do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. See, when they see your good works, they're saying, wow, God must be working in those people. Look what they do. That's our calling. Just like the Thessalonians, it's not only the Thessalonians that are called, not only the Ephesians that are called to walk as children of light. If we know Christ, that's what our walk is to be. It's to be light. It's to illumine the path for others to see. It's to bring glory to our God in heaven. May we, by the grace of Yahweh, walk as children of light. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have today with so many study aids, so many things available that we can really research and dig into your word and find the truth of it. Lord, I pray that we would all be Bereans, Lord. We'd not believe the things we hear We would investigate the things we hear to see if they are so. May we dig, may we learn, may we grow, may we encourage one another, Lord, along the way. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen. All righty, questions, comments? (laughs) <laughs> Doug asks, what spiritual forces are behind current persecution of the church in our 21st century world? The forces of man's evilness. Okay, here's what people have to understand. Men are evil. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean there there are definitely forces, there are groups of people. All right, the cabal, if you never heard of the cabal, there's an organized effort to kill us, I believe. I mean, you got people like Bill Gates, okay? Bill Gates believes in population control, limiting the population. And then he comes along and has vaccines. You want to step up and take one of his vaccines? Knowing his purpose, he doesn't want you healthy, he wants you dead. There is an organized force in this world that, yes, they try to control everything. They're controlling the food supply. They're controlling the water supply. They control the air. And they want us dead. Or they want us dumbed down to the point we just follow along blindly. And now they're showing if you resist in any way, guess what? They use the FBI. They use the Department of Justice to come against you and say, oh, no, you don't. People are killing people. And the next day they're out on bail. The people that walked into the White House, they're still in prison. Never had a trial. Still in prison. What is wrong? There's something going on. There's an organized force, but it's a force of evil men who are filthy rich. And they want this planet to themselves, basically. Um, <clears throat> Ron asks, you were talking about Chuck Smith earlier. Is that Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel? Yeah, Costa Mesa, California. That's the Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel. And, and listen, let me give you, let me give Chuck credit. Chuck teaches verse by verse. I mean, he'll cover a whole chapter in 15 minutes, but you know, he does go verse by verse. I got to give him credit. I'm just anyone is using the Bible and trying to teach it. I want to give credit there. Okay. This is from Kalen. It's freezing in here. Oh, no, I wasn't supposed to read that. We're supposed to send that to me. I turned it off. Oh, even Brian is cold? I can tell. All right, Rick Rick writes What's interesting is that Jesus changed from no man knows the hour while with the disciples, to he is coming back soon in the Book of Revelation. His time with the Father after his ascension changed what he knew of the events of AD seventy. I I I think that the Lord was operating in his humanness and he didn't know the day of the hour. They didn't want them to know the day or the hour. It was going to come like a thief. That's the whole idea. You don't you don't know when the thief's coming. But the Lord, and people say, well if he didn't know the day or the hour, he's not God. When the Lord was here He is operating in His humanness, okay? He's not operating in His deity. And that's so important that we understand that. From Norm, he says, Do you still not think God is judging America? There's more crime committed in capital than on any street at any time in a given day. Our rulers, our godless enemies are overtaking us. Um, Oh, I agree. I mean, our government is the most corrupt thing that there is okay but let me tell you personally my opinion is about to come to an end okay I believe before this year's out Trump will be back I stop yeah I know I know you naysayers that's okay I'm not prophesying I'm just telling you if you're paying attention to what's going on things are happening around this country laws are being changed law voting laws are being put in place They're wanting people to have IDs to vote. Isn't that crazy? They're putting these laws in effect. They're saying, here's how crazy the laws are getting. They don't want illegals to vote. Oh, can you even imagine that? But a lot of stuff is going on. A lot of stuff is happening. My personal opinion is Trump has never stopped being our president. He's a president in exile. And if you're familiar with the Uniform Code of Military Justice and you're familiar with the Constitution, he never left, okay? This was a takeover that happened. The election was stolen. He knows it. He's working on it. It's going to change here, though. But yes, I believe there's an evil, evil group of people in this world. But I don't think God's going to judge it. I used to think God has to judge America because we're so messed up. I don't think America's so messed up. I think the heart of America is decent people, for the most part, who love, the, who love God. And I'll tell you, in the patriot movement, one thing I'm finding, these patriots are not only patriots, they're God-fearing people. And I think the majority of the people, does, they don't want to hear about these you know, tons of genders, and I want my child taught all this sex stuff. No, they don't want any of that stuff. They're decent people. It's our government. It's our leaders and the media. The media has the voice, and they're putting it out, and they're all synced. Okay, they're all saying the exact same thing at the exact same time because they're all controlled by the cabal. And so people hear it, and you hear it. If you're watching mainstream media, I'm telling you, you're going down the wrong road. Shut that nonsense off. And I'm talking Fox News, too. They're not any different than the rest of them. They give you a little bit here and there to try to keep you strung along. It's all nonsense. Get your news from some reliable source, on the ground of a patriot. There's tons of sources out there that you can get. But if you're listening, if you're watching TV, you don't have a clue what's happening in this world. You're buying the narrative. It's all garbage. Anybody hear Putin's speech last week? Oh, my word. It was so exciting. I'm like, this is awesome. I mean, he says, we're not going to be like that satanic America They're not going to tell us there's all these different genders. They're not going to try to mess with our kids and change the. He goes, that stuff's not happening in this country. I'm like, yeah, we are messed up over here. I mean, when you got a art, you don't even know what bathroom to go in. Come on. But again, it's the media and a few people at the top. I think the heartland is people who love God, and want what most of us want. So I don't think God's going to judge America. I think He's going to judge these leaders that we have. I think it's going to happen soon. Again, it's my personal opinion. Most people disagree with me. That's fine. Okay? Soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, someone asked a question, are we to assume that during the New Testament transition period when John wrote, that they were actively performing animal sacrifices in the temple. Yeah, absolutely. During the transition period, they were performing animal sacrifices. That didn't stop till eighty seventy. When the temple went down, no more sacrifices. Until then, they were, they were offering it. Thanks, Dave. My wife came running out of the kitchen <laughs> and beat me with a rolling pin when she heard your comment about woman's work. <laughs> Just kidding. Excellent preaching and message today. It all makes so much biblical sense. We appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks, Chris from Ohio. I appreciate that. You know, I'm old-fashioned. I am. I think men have roles, women have roles. And if you're in your house, that's up to you what the role, what those roles are. You know, like our roles have switched. Kathy used to cook. I cook now. She doesn't cook anymore, very rarely. She cleans up. I like cooking. That changed when I really started getting into healthy stuff and I started using certain things to cook with. She's like... Go ahead. So I did. And I cook and she cleans. It works out really good. (laughs) As long as she's in the kitchen, I'm happy. Okay. (laughs) Do you think that when we look at Israel, and what happened to them, it's a warning to all nations not to follow suit? They're there for us to know better as a nation. Yeah, you don't, I mean, Israel was God's people. They had His law. They violated it. They went away. I I, I think, personally, I think Israel today is a very corrupt, cabal-run country. Okay? And I think that's going to be dealt with also. Okay? Someone says, agree with you that President Trump will be back. See, that's two of us. Three, okay. Four, yeah. I see that hand. I see those hands Hands all over the auditorium. <laughs> That's right. Or two or three agree, it's done. Uh, someone said, Chuck Smith passed away 2013, October 13. This text is from Warren. Now, this was from Chuck Smith, okay? The, the writings I had, I, I'm not saying it's current. I'm just saying that Chuck wrote this, okay? It was from his message on Thessalonians. The world is so bad and evil, don't let anyone steal the light and joy. We have overcome the world. Listen, believer, whatever you think of what's going to happen with Trump and stuff, we win because we're Christians. Okay? We win. All right? The evil... I didn't realize how evil our world is. I mean, I'm realizing it more and more. I mean, every area that you look at is corrupt, beyond imagination, you know, in the leadership... You know, Big Pharma, the medical community, like Veronica was saying, they're making tons of money, okay? They love this. It's coming in like crazy. They don't want you finding natural cures. Any, any clinic in this country that comes up with natural cures and is healing people, they drive them out. And most of these clinics go to Mexico. And it's sad. If you want to be healed without being cut, poisoned, or burned, you have to go to Mexico. And, and Veronica shared stories. There's, these clinics in Mexico are healing a lot of people naturally. And it's, it's just there. It's amazing. But again, again, if you're watching mainstream media, shame on you. If you want to be ignorant, watch mainstream media. Because they're programming your mind. And the stuff, listen, they don't just bend the truth a little. They flat out make stuff up that never happened. They invent people. This girl got raped by this. There's no girl. There's nothing. And you know what they qu- quote as their source? Anonymous. That means nobody. We just made it all up. So one of the first steps in making progress in your life is shut off that TV. Stop getting that input. It, it just It's going to kill you.